Last year, um, I spoke at a conference in Belfast, and the, um, the name of the conference was The World on Our Doorstep. And uh, this was it's quite a significant time for the Northern Ireland at the moment, because since the Good Friday Agreement, they've, they've had an influx of international students and, and um, immigrants and, um, and migrant workers, uh, and lots of people from lots of different countries, and this is very new. But for many years, I've met missionaries from Northern Ireland in different parts of the world. And Northern Ireland has a great tradition of, of missionary sending. But it's very new for them to find that the world has actually come to their doorstep. Even to the point where um, Lynette was in a, a super, supermarket in Ireland and uh, the children were chasing her around and saying, speak Chinese, speak Chinese, because they're simply not used to the amount of uh, people from different countries who are there. But of course here in Oxford we know that the, the world has been on our doorstep for decades, ever since the 60s or before, Christians have been proactive in reaching out to the many different countries who come here to study and to work. And the statistics keep changing. Uh, every time I think I've got a good statistic to tell you, it keeps changing, but I think the last thing I heard was about Saudi Arabians. There are 3,000 Saudis in Oxford. Um, I'm not quite sure I can verify that, but certainly lots. And they are the ones who have acquired the visas. They are the ones who have learned or are learning our language. They are the ones who have got on the plane and come here. They are the ones who have made the journey. And yet their journey is not quite complete. Because the world might be on our doorstep, but it still requires us to get off our living room sofa, go to the door, open it, and welcome them in. And although geographically that's a much smaller journey to make, it is still significant nonetheless. Acts 1 verse 8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we know that verse, and it's no surprise that it will come up on a missionary Sunday. But when we think of that verse, we think of a geographical journey from Jerusalem as a centre to Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria, the next door province, and on into the rest of the world. But primarily, that journey is not geographical, It is cultural. And so Acts 1 verse 8 is like a contents page for the rest of the book. From Jerusalem and Judea, from Aramaic-speaking Jewish culture, uh, to Samaria, to the mixed culture of the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile, and on into the ends of the earth, into Gentile territory. And each step that the Gospel took required people with imagination and vision to see God's purposes worked out in the lives of people very different from themselves. And Paul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch and Philip, who we'll be looking at today, were all people of imagination and vision who could take the gospel not just across geographical borders, but also cultural ones. In the first four chapters of the book of Acts, we see the church going from strength to strength. But then from chapter 5 onwards, we have a series of setbacks, a satanic backlash, if you like. We have the Ananias and Sapphira episode, the persecution from the Jewish ruling council, discontent and problems within the church over the feeding of widows, and then finally an all-out persecution in which Stephen is martyred and the church is scattered. But then from chapter 8 onwards, the tide turns again. And just as the church emerges out of those problems, Luke puts Philip centre stage. The problem they had going back to chapter 6 was that the church was growing and was including 
Aramaic-speaking Jews born in Palestine and also Greek-speaking Jews of the diaspora, Hellenistic Jews. And they, they, had, they were all Jews, but they had different differences in their culture and they were not cooperating fully somehow. And so the uh, Greek-speaking widows were being left out of the daily distribution of food. And the apostles recognised that this was a potential distraction from the job in hand. And so they delegated it to a committee, as we would. And Philip appears here first as that committee of men. Today I'd like to do a, a bit of a character study on Philip, which is why we've got two passages read out this morning. Uh, it actually spans chapter 6 to 8, but I'll be concentrating mostly on the last part uh, of his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. And I have four headings, so if you're writing them down, the first heading is Filled with the Spirit and Wisdom. Filled with the Spirit and Wisdom. It's very interesting what criteria these men were chosen on. They were chosen because they were known to be filled with the Spirit and Wisdom. Wise, I suppose, because they were capable men who were able to do the job in hand, that they, were, they would make sensible decisions and were intelligent but also that they were known to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? How do you recognise someone who is filled with the Spirit? And immediately, we're into an area of controversy. I know very well that that this issue has divided Christians over many decades. And believe me, I have no no desire today to be at all controversial. In fact, actually what I want to do is to put those things which have divided Christians into a big box, put them to the side and leave them there. Because there's a heart issue here. Many babies have been thrown out with bathwaters over this issue. I want us to get to the heart of the issue underneath. We are commanded in Ephesians 5 verse 18 to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing command. And evangelical Christians right across the spectrum, I hope, agree on at least four things. The first is that the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Agree? Good. (laughs) Second thing is that the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is essential for our coming to Christ in the first place. I can remember as an atheist, coming under the conviction of sin, weeks or months before I ever even believed in God, the thirdly, that the Holy Spirit is essential for our ongoing discipleship and our growth in Christ's likeness to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But also, fourthly, there must be some active participation on our part, some deliberate inviting the work of the Holy Spirit into our lives. I remember walking down a church corridor and overhearing two Christians arguing about this. And there's a lady talking to a man, and the lady said, we must be filled with the Spirit. And the man said, but the Holy Spirit is a person, not a liquid. And um, that you can't have a bit of a person, you either have him or you don't, and as Christians we have him, end of story. Well, I can perhaps understand that. But if I can put it more like this, that our lives are like a house filled with many rooms. And if you and I are Christians today, then the Holy Spirit is in the house and is there to stay. But that doesn't mean to say that we've opened every door to him. And someone who is filled with the Spirit is someone who has consciously gone through the house, opening every area of their lives and invited the Holy Spirit to work in them in every way. From the living room, the dining room, kitchen, to that cupboard under the stairs where we put things where we don't want people to see. 
I gave this um, example at a church once, and an old lady came up to me afterwards and she said, I have a very holy front hall, but I'm going to go home and throw open all the doors and let him come in. A friend of mine once asked me, could you pray for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We were both 19, I had no idea what I was doing. Neither of us had worked out our theology, but it seemed like a good thing to do, so I prayed. It was a lovely time, nothing much happened, but two weeks later he came to me and said, since you prayed for me, the Bible has come alive. I start to, it's starting to speak to my life like it never did before. The second title I have is Filled with the Spirit for the Ordinary. Filled with the Spirit for the Ordinary. We might think that being filled with the Spirit makes it somehow mystical. But Philip's first task as a Spirit-filled man was to make sure that widows were fed. And to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with God's power to do the ordinary, but to do it for God's glory. Now, you look like a fairly intelligent bunch. And I'm sure that in this church we have enough natural ability to run any number of things, uh, any things for the community, and, and run this church really, really well. We don't need the Holy Spirit, per se, to run an organisation. But, if the person who puts out the chairs and puts them away, the person who does the tea and coffee, the person who looks after the children, the people who are on the worship team or on the PA, as well as the people who teach and preach, are all actively seeking to be filled with the Spirit, then what happens is that this goes from being a well-run club to a life-transforming community where people walk in through that door and know that Jesus is among us. Let none of us ever say, all I do is... All I do is the children's work. All I do is make the tea and coffee. It's what God has filled us with his spirit to do. But the third title is that Philip was filled with the spirit and vision. Filled with the spirit and vision. Philip gets the big picture right from the start. The outbreak of persecution at the beginning of chapter 8 initiated this great explosion of witness outside Jerusalem into Judea, And Philip went into Samaria. This was really the fulfilment of what Jesus said in Acts 1 verse 8. And Philip is right at the spearhead of that. And it seems obvious to us now, looking back, that this was God's plan all along, that the gospel should be for not just the Jews, but the Samaritans and the Gentiles too. But what's obvious to us now, looking back, was not obvious to them at the time. Now, recently I was talking to a student group at Headington Baptist Church where we go. I was telling them about how we got involved with international student ministry, about how when we met as undergraduates, we just reached out to our friends and um, we, we put on events and we had meals together and we, we um, shared the gospel with Muslims and, and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and agnostics. It was a great time. But the student group looked at me incredulous. They said, where did you meet all these international students? Well, they were our friends. They were, my next door neighbour was a a Sri Lankan. But you wouldn't believe how many times I I speak to student groups and I tell them about international students and their, their, their thinking is, but where do we meet them? You trip over them in the street. But this is the thing, we, we need to be switched on. You wouldn't believe how many people just walk past 
international people in the city without actually realising, A, that they're there, and B, that we have a part to play in their lives. We assume it's for other people to do. It's a blind spot. But it's a blind spot that Philip didn't have. Straight away, he didn't need to wait for apostolic permission. And he was a person of imagination and vision. And that's the challenge this morning. Are we going to be people of imagination and vision who can walk through the streets of Oxford, see people from all over the world and say, actually, I have a part to play in reaching out to them. The fourth title is Filled with the Spirit for the Extraordinary. Filled with the Spirit for the Extraordinary. People say that we shouldn't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but I think the greater danger as Christians is to be so earthly minded that we never expect anything extraordinary. And Philip was somebody who had quite an extraordinary experience. Let's look at his amazing day in Acts chapter 8. It's quite a day, wasn't it? First of all, he had a visitation from an angel telling him to essentially drop everything and go out along into the desert region. No further instructions, just do that. Secondly, he gets there and he sees in the distance a large procession of people, of chariots and horses and servants and guards, all there because of one man, an important official from a foreign country. He's not from Ethiopia, or present-day Ethiopia, he's from an area probably around northern Sudan, and he's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, an incredibly important man, and he's on his way south along the desert road because he's either a Jew or a convert to Judaism or, in my view, most probably a God-fearer, somebody who was um, disillusioned with the polytheism of the time and allied himself with the monotheism of the Jews. And he'd been to Jerusalem to worship a devout man, but also quite a wealthy man. He could afford his own copy of the scroll of Isaiah. And he sits reading in the chariot. Now, I could never read in the car. It makes me feel sick. But he's reading in the chariot and he's reading out loud, which is what people did in those days. And he can read it, but somehow it's not all adding up. And then this very ordinary looking man, a fellow traveller, asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And Philip invites him to, to come into the chariot and, and uh, sorry, the Ethiopian invites Philip to come into the chariot and he explains the gospel starting from the scripture. And suddenly it all makes sense. The, the dots are joined, the, the pieces of the jigsaw fit and he is baptised. And if that wasn't enough excitement for one day, just so that the Ethiopian could go home with the assurance that this was no chance encounter but this was an encounter a divine appointment from the living God. Philip is whisked away in an instant and reappears many miles away. Now that was quite a day. Now let, me, let me tell you about an amazing day I had. Not quite on that level, but pretty good all the same. Uh, I noticed that in our church um, an international student uh, from China who kept coming to the evening service, sitting at the back and at the end of the service he'd run away. And he did this for a few weeks and I eventually managed to corner him in the car park before he escaped. And I said, it's really nice to see you. Would you like to have lunch sometime? Shall we have, have lunch together? He said, that'd be great. So I, I no expense spared, I took him to Frankie and Benny's two for one. And um, we had lunch together. 
And when we were talking over the lunch table, we, I asked him about where he was from and what he was studying, and I told him about my family. And then I said, Ray, it's really nice to meet you. And it's really great to see you in our church, but could you tell me why you come? And he said, I want to become a Christian, I just don't know how. I want to become a Christian, I just don't know how. Clearly, the Holy Spirit had been working in him long before I ever met him. And the Holy Spirit was working in the Ethiopian's life long before Philip ever met him. But at that moment, I was in the right place at the right time. And over the next half hour, I explained the gospel as best I could. And so that he would know what to do, I wrote a prayer of commitment on a napkin, which he took home. He prayed, and five years later, he's still a Christian going on with God today. Please don't think these things happen to me all the time. I'm certain that actually there's a lot of opportunities which I miss because I'm not ready, I'm not switched on. I'm not open enough to God to follow his leading. But these many miracles remind me that God wants to use us. My wife put it like this, that being filled with the Spirit sometimes is like having a heightened awareness of what God is doing. So we don't need a visit from an angel to get with the program. We can be there at the right place at the right time. When was the last time you had an amazing day? The kind of experience that you have where you draw breath and go, wow. When was the last time you had a conversation with someone who, maybe they were at the point of wanting to believe, or maybe they just needed some help from somebody who knows their Bible, or has has got a closer walk with God, maybe just being in the right place at the right time for someone who is waiting for the answer to life's problems. And Philip's day looks like a bit of a one-off. The kind of thing you can never really prepare for. But when we look at Philip, we see that he was ready. Firstly, because he was already filled with the Spirit. He'd opened all the doors and welcomed the Lord in. Secondly, he was filled with the Spirit for the ordinary. He was already tasked to to feed widows. And he got on with that and he'd done the ordinary stuff of church life. Thirdly, he was already engaged in obeying God. When, after the persecution, it was Philip who first went off to Samaria and he was busy preaching the gospel. He didn't wait for an angelic visitation to get on with the job. And lastly, when the moment came, he was ready and he could explain his faith to a seeker. I wonder if we can do that. I wonder if we're used to doing that, explaining our faith simply without our palms getting sweaty and our voice shaking. A friend of mine said that when she was asked at a public meeting, uh, what is a Christian? And it was a genuine question. And she said that she bumbled and waffled and mumbled her way through an increasingly complicated answer. Of course she knew what a Christian was. She just couldn't get it out. I wonder if we're ready to do that. I wonder where you are today. Maybe you're like the uh, old lady I met who said, I have a very holy front hall, but I'm going to go home and open all those doors. Maybe you're afraid to do that. Afraid of what will happen. Well, God loves us, and God, this is what God's desire is for, for us to be increasingly surrendered to him. Maybe you're frustrated that nothing ever dramatic happens in your life. 
your Christian life is full of the mundane stuff, the booking rooms and the organising events and the cooking and looking after kids and making drinks and, and that sort of thing. And maybe you need to see that this is part of the same whole. This is part of what God is doing. And that maybe this is just a prelude to something much bigger. Perhaps you're quite comfortable with your faith as it is, and perhaps you need to be challenged to see that God can use you to touch the lives of people very different from yourself. Normally when we talk about missions, we talk about going, going out there. And I've been mostly applying today's message to an international student ministry here in Oxford. And Richard and Catherine and and hopefully the the new appointee uh, next year will be concentrating on that. But it's not their job to do it. It's our job. International student witness or asylum seeker witness or cross-cultural witness in this part of Oxford is a team effort. People are actually converted through community. People see the Christian life worked out. And it's not one person's job. Um, So please, if you're at all moved, please do speak to Richard and Catherine and say, what can I do? Um, as I've already said, I have three children. And um, when they were very small, Lynette and I sat down one dinner time and, and asked each other, how do we do this? How do we bring up our kids in a world where there are so many temptations and so many pressures on them and so many, so many ways they could go? How do we help them to deal with peer pressure? Now, Parenthood is a work in progress, and I'm not there yet. But one thing that we said at the time was that the best form of defence is offence. And that we were not going to sit back and try and protect the kids from the world, but actually we'd go on the offensive and try and demonstrate to them that the Christian life is far more exciting, far more gutsy, far more life-changing, and unbelievably brilliant compared to anything else that their friends and the world can offer. Now, it's taken us to some extremes. We brought them to Kosovo a couple of times. I had to tell my mother-in-law I'd just taken her grandchildren to Kosovo. But they saw mission in action there. And, and each week, or quite frequently, they see international students in our home. And it makes a big difference. When they were smaller, as much younger, because the international students say, oh, how cute. And now they're taller than they are. Oh, not so cute anymore. But basically, it's given them the context of seeing mission done in the home. Forgive me for being a bit of a proud dad here. Forgive me. But my eight-year-old daughter, Madeline, we have these girls who come each week um, from Japan, from Brooks, who come for Bible study. And we have dinner with them. And this has meant a lot to Madeline. And so when the earthquake happened, the tsunami happened in, um, in Japan recently, she went up to her head teacher, eight years old, and said, I want to do a bake sale. And... Somehow it kind of grew, and the Japanese mums and the other kids got involved, but she wanted to do this. And she wanted to do this because she'd seen Japanese girls in her home, and it meant much more to her. I'm of the honest opinion, firstly, that there's, this is an all-inclusive thing. Nobody here cannot do this. But secondly... That with the amount of students and asylum seekers and other internationals coming to the UK, it makes absolutely no sense to consider getting on a plane to go to another country unless we are first starting to cross cultures here. I'm not saying either or, it's both and, they're two halves of the same whole. The geographical journey is useless unless it's accompanied by a cultural journey too. 
And this is a call for all of us to be like Philip, to be people of vision and imagination, who can see that the gospel is not just for us and for people like us, but actually we have a part to play in, in giving the gospel to people to the uttermost parts of the world. And if, just imagine, if everybody here, including myself, is regularly praying, Lord, fill me with your spirit in every area of my life, what a difference that would make to us here as individuals, to this church, to this part of Oxford, and the nations that will be touched through us. Just think what happened in Ethiopia when that man got home.